the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Trust you're doing well and having a good week so far. We've got a great show planned for you coming up a little bit later on. We're going to ask you the question, I think one that we all have to uh, wrestle with when it comes to the nature of our relationship with the Lord, and that is, are you satisfied or unsatisfied? And can you be blessed to be unsatisfied? I, I realize that line of thinking runs contrarian to much of the teaching of people like Joel Osteen and Frederick Casey Price and Kenneth Copeland and a lot. And yet our guest tonight, Amy Simpson, I think is going to drill down into God's perspective on this question of satisfaction that I think will surprise you. We'll get to that conversation a little bit later on in tonight's program. Michael Bennett's got traffic for us tonight as we lead off the top of the program. An update on some critical things taking place in Sacramento. As you know, we've been following a number of stories related to pro-life issues. And, you know, now it's kind of expanded. For the longest time in the the pro-life effort, it was doing all that we could post-1973 to protect the lives of the unborn and give life to the unborn born and give voice to the unborn. Today, that has broadened to the other end of the life continuum, and that is standing up on behalf of those who are at the twilight of their years and deemed by some in society to be no longer contributing to society, in fact, being a burden financially on society because of uh, financial bills related to medical expenses, housing, all of this. And so California, as some European states have in the past, has had this slow, steady march toward doing all that we can to essentially say quality of life also ultimately determines whether or not you're allowed to continue living. And to get a bit of an update on efforts towards expanding assisted suicide here in the state of California, we're joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And Brian, this is an issue that ought to disturb all of us, because while some might say, well, you know, I've got kids that are raised and my uh, childbearing years are over with, I'm not really uh, directly impacted by this whole abortion thing. But everyone of us, every one of us will soon at some point face matters of death as it relates to our own mortality and how we ultimately get treated by our children and grandchildren and what the state does with us could very much be determined by how far these measures here in California are allowed to go. Okay, today um, I'm going to have to talk to you, uh, speaking of giving a voice to others, I'm going to have to give you uh, Clint Eastwood's voice because I'm uh, fighting uh, that bug that's going around. So, uh, sorry about that. Hopefully you can hear me. Yep. You're exactly right. Uh, and this would be a time to put in a plug for Grand Torino, maybe. But in point of fact, uh, 
I do want to touch base with something you said about this being, and it's understood to be for when you're in your twilight years, I guess, as Clint was in that movie. But more to the point, what's happened right now is that Sweden is considering the same bill. The folks in Sweden decided to investigate what's happening in America. They wanted to copy Oregon's law. But in Oregon, they found out that the definition of terms is very, very broad. And it does not apply to terminal, as you and I might consider it, as that very uh, attractive, mediagenic marketing that happened three years ago. The California girl, she lived right up from KFAX. She lived in Alamo. And she had a terrible brain tumor condition. Now, you may not know that that was, in fact, treatable. They didn't talk about it as terrible as it was. But more to the fact, they wanted her because she was pretty and sweet, and she wanted they wanted your empathy. But the language used about terminal, the Swedish folks asked Oregon, how do you actually define terminal? What's the real meaning? And what it means is that if in the judgment of the doctor, that's the guy that's going to overview the killing, if in that person's judgment you don't get a medical intervention for six months and you could be terminal, well, that's terminal. But they asked for a more, what do you mean by medical intervention and what conditions? And literally it applies in Oregon. And this is just coming out now. Your favorite media host, Brian Williams, is not going to talk about this. The pop media is not going to explain it to you. But the state of Oregon did explain it to the Swedish lawmakers, and they were stunned. In Oregon, it means if you have diabetes and you're depressed and you decide not to take your insulin, well, then now you're terminal because that means you're going to die in a lot less than six months if you don't take your diabetes insulin. But if you take your insulin, you can live for 40. Insulin is there. Medicine is there to help you. But if you don't take these essential things that will help your continuation of life and you may die, we're going to call you terminal. So the real goal of the euthanasia movement is not really compassion. It's utilitarianism. It's utilitarian view of other human beings. That if they could be disposable and they're willing to volunteer, then we may need to make it legal for medicine to be changed. You're witnessing the change, a fundamental change in medicine, so that it's no longer about helping human beings. It's about controlling human beings' lives, and then if need be, when they decide, determining who will continue to live. And that's particularly clear when we talk about the change in our culture, viewing medicine as a consumer issue, and what are the costs, and what's the cost-benefit analysis, and which human beings are worth it. And that's what we're literally seeing. So this is something you have to understand. This is a sweeping decision by the Swedish, and, and it's getting some play outside of the normal circles, but people need to understand that the the normal media circles won't explain that to you. This is all based on deceit and throwing mama from the train. So there's a bill right now, Assembly Bill 282 in Sacramento, and Assembly Bill 282 goes beyond the legalization of assisted suicide. See, right now, assisted suicide is legal in California, but what's not legal is for you to go to Grandma and say, Grandma, you know you're sick. Grandma, you know it's costing us money, and it's hard to take care of you. Grandma, you know, you, we have to sell the house just to take care of you. Grandma, Billy wants to go to college. Billy doesn't have a car. Grandma, we love you. But this will allow heirs to cajole, to manipulate, to aid and abet, facilitate suicide. 
And Assembly Bill 282 will not allow any investigation or prosecution of that. This is a dramatic change, even in the laws we have now. This is the reason assisted suicide was illegal in the first place, because too many of the assistants have a vested interest in getting rid of that person. Well, and you know what's frightening about this, Brian, is the fact that we are taking a a goodly percentage of the population, and I want folks listening to realize, if that doesn't include you today, it will very soon. There's 80 million of us in the baby boomer category, 10,000 a day reach retirement age. So just be mindful that we're not talking about something way off in the future. I'm talking about something that could be impacting you personally in the next 10 to 15 years. And what's troubling about this, Brian, is that now this opens up the floodgates to take those that are the most vulnerable within our society today and make them even more vulnerable. That's exactly right. And and please don't. I I, I understand why you mentioned the twilight years. That's how it's sold. I literally was at the hospital last night, Craig, and my wife as well, because my flu had gotten deeper into my lungs. And so I went through some of the some of the tests, and I realized how quickly, and you need to realize, particularly if you're diabetic, if you have some things that are kind of lingering, if you're overweight, you don't understand how fragile your own health is. It's not when you're 80 or 90 it's dangerous. Your health can change very, very quickly. And literally, uh, just from this flu, this recent flu, I happen to know people who are very sick, they were hospitalized from this last flu. Now, we went in the walk-in, we were able to walk out with the right drugs and the right treatment. But you don't understand your health, the health of your loved ones. Once medicine's character has changed, and that's what we're talking about, this is a fundamental change in medicine that goes back 3,000 years ago, the Hippocratic Oath made medicine an honorable profession. That honor was stripped away in 73, when doctors were free to kill babies. And those who saw it said, well, that's a Hippocratic Oath, but what's even more clear is you really can't kill any of your patients. Hippocratic Oath made doctors swear that even if people ask them, and even in the most emotional circumstances available, a doctor still would not kill a patient. That is now gone, my friends. And if you're not aware of it, if you're not painfully cognizant, how immediate that is, and if you're not talking to your doctor and looking for good good doctors right now who agree with the necessity to care for human beings and never, ever harm or kill them, then you are looking for a world of trouble. I hate to sound so dire, but that is the cultural change in medicine that is now changing and with the industrialization, with the HMO system that's been here for a while, that now has adopted that very quickly. It's very easy to flip this industrialized medicine that doesn't really care for life. It only cares for the people you wish to care for. And then you have these other tools to be done with the people you no longer wish to care for. Assembly Bill 282 is the one specifically to which Brian is referring. And it is important that you get educated on this, as we are attempting to do again tonight on the program. And then most importantly, that you contact your member of the California State Legislature and urge he or she to vote no on AB 282. Complete details, by the way, are available by going to the uh, California Pro-Life website. And you can simply find that at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. There's a number of action alerts there. And if you go under the legislation tab, uh, you'll get all the details as to where things stand right now and, most importantly, what you need to do to act. CaliforniaProLife.org. 
And our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Brian, hope you feel better. We'll be praying for you. And uh, hang in there, my friend. I know it's a tough thing to overcome. That respiratory stuff uh, can be difficult, to be sure. All right. There is Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee. Uh, 517 on the clock. Let's get caught up on some traffic for you right now over at the KFAX Traffic Center, the latest... And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, as we promised or threatened, we're back to uh, more of our show tonight here on Lifeline 521. Word of faith preachers uh, certainly, I think, largely suggest that the Christian life should be filled with 100% satisfaction based on their name it and claim it approach to theology. You certainly hear that. And uh, that sense of being uh, completely universally healthy, as Ken Copeland claims, and being financially wealthy, as Frederick Casey Price claims, the apostles are all rich people. That's a new one to you, right? Um, and at the end of the day, you have to wonder, um, all of this between being healthy and wealthy should, of course, lead to complete faith satisfaction, or does it? My guest today asserts, and I quote, after 40 years of walking with Jesus, I'm deeply unsatisfied not only with my ability to reflect Jesus, but also with the very quality of my intimacy with him. I strongly suspect that the abyss of my nature has not been entirely satisfied by Jesus. Close quote. Is our lack of satisfaction a result from a lack of health and wealth? or from a lack of true intimacy with God. And what's God's opinion on all of this? We break down all the facts for you as we're joined by author Amy Simpson. Amy's written a number of best-selling books. Her latest is called simply, Blessed Are the Unsatisfied. And Amy, great to have you on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. I, I first saw the title of the book and I thought, well, that's odd. <laughs> and then... Uh, when I saw some of the promotional material, and uh, you were citing, oddly enough, a few of the people that I was thinking about in relationship to this topic tonight, I thought, well, now there's a bit of a different approach to all of this, because we've been steadfastly told, at least in some circles, predominantly word of faith circles, that Christians should always be happy. We should always be satisfied. And if we're not, and God is not catering to our every whim by filling our coffers with gold, the driveway with a Cadillac, etc., etc., then clearly there must be something wrong with us, or there must be sin in our life. And yet, as you suggest, there seems to be a new, new, uniquely worldly application to the definition of satisfaction that is used by many of these so-called Bible teachers, as opposed to God's perspective on this, which is quite different. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, you know, I think God's perspective is, first of all, that we we don't expect, we shouldn't expect to have a life that is, you know, wealthy, healthy all the time, um, happy all the time. And in fact, if you look at Scripture at all, if you're at all familiar with Scripture, you know, that's pretty obvious in not only in what it teaches, but in the examples of the lives of people who are rep- represented in Scripture. Um, but also, you know, for many people, they, they're willing to accept that and say, okay, I, I recognize, you know, I won't be wealthy just because I'm a Christian, or I won't, you know, I might have, I might still get sick, you know, that kind of thing. But emotionally and spiritually, I should be 100% satisfied. And, you know, my assertion is, 
not necessarily. You know, that we don't really have a reason to expect that either, that that's a sort of a, a made-up concept, just like the idea that we will be completely wealthy and healthy and, and happy. And that doesn't mean that God is not the source of our satisfaction, but while we're in this life, you know, we have we live with serious limitations that keep us from fully experiencing what it means to be a child of God. You know, it's interesting because we will hear oft-quoted, and I might add out of context, such passages of Scripture as uh, how that uh, God wants to give us the desires of our heart. Mm-hmm. And we quickly then conclude, yay, that's good news because I desire the brand new Mercedes. <laughs> and yet, then we're told in other passages of Scripture that he that is blessed, that has his mind set on the things of God, whatever so th- such thing is pure and wholesome, so on and so forth. And then suddenly you get into this bit of doctrinal and theological quandary where we're told that God will give us the desires of our heart, and yet he says that our sights, our heart ought to be set upon him, that as David, we ought to have a heart after God. So suddenly you say, well, wait a minute now then. That seems to suggest that God is in the business of of fulfilling our desires, but he wants our desire to predominantly be to desire him, to desire relationship with him, to desire communion with him, which is not at all what we're often told by many of these so-called prosperity preachers. Yeah, exactly. It's actually, it's very common to have, I think, a consumeristic approach to God and to, you know, expect God or expect Christ to be a product, you know, that, that matches our desires. We're, we're, you know, the market is there, the salt need is there, so we just go find the product, and the product is Jesus. Um, but Jesus is not a product, and, you know, God will not be consumed. God does not, you know, wrap himself around and shape himself around our desires. Rather, he wants to shape our desires around him. And he's not interested in merely, you know, fulfilling our desires as they stand now. He wants to transform them, and he does so through the work of his Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because this um, experience, this this sense, I think, of arriving at a different understanding about this is one that I would suspect for you, for any of us, um, Amy, is not arrived at easily because, let's face it, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the desire for earthly things, that's kind of inbred into our fallen nature, our sin nature. And so you almost have to train yourself to rethink this entire approach to what it means to be satisfied, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for, for many of us, I think that, that happens as, we're, as we experience being unsatisfied, and we're able to be honest about that. Um, you know, because the reason so many people, this message is so popular, you know, that you will be 100% satisfied if you just know Jesus or if you have God in your life, is because... It's, that's what people want to hear. You know, it's, it sounds great. That's what we all want, because we, we want to be fulfilled. We want to be satisfied completely in this life. Who doesn't? And yet, when we do that, when we settle for that, you know, we're really settling for much less than God actually wants to offer us, which is far better than what we experience now. But, you know, it does. It, it, it requires us to not only train ourselves, but to you know, to accept God's perspective, to welcome the Holy Spirit's transformational work in our lives so that we do see things differently. We have a broader perspective, a more eternal perspective, and it requires a lot of, I think, trust and hope, you know, placing our hope in Christ rather than placing our hope in what we have 
or what we experience of him now. There is always that sense of sort of a carnal yardstick toward uh, measuring our sense of satisfaction in life, and much of that seems to be in relationship to getting what we want. Certainly there are many aspects of the so-called prosperity gospel that appeal to just that, that sense of God being the one that will make sure you get what you want as opposed to God giving you what you need. And when we come back after a time out, uh, let's explore this a little bit further in coming to the understanding that even if you get what you want, it doesn't always lead, in fact, often does not lead to a sense of satisfaction in life at all. Visiting today with best-selling author Amy Simpson, the book Blessed Are the Unsatisfied, Finding Spiritual Freedom in an Imperfect World. We'll get back to more of our visit with Amy right now, though. We visit with Michael Bennett, who's got the latest on your Wednesday ride home at 530 from KFAX. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to The Conversation. Visiting today with best-selling author Amy Simpson. We are um, wading into the waters of a bit of a theological controversy here, but that's okay. It can be a good, healthy exercise as we break down the understanding between God's definition of what satisfaction ought to be, our definition of what satisfaction ought to be, and, and before we get to whether or not God even really truly wants us to be satisfied, let's talk about those that seek satisfaction and never fail to achieve it. In the book you discuss, and we hear these stories every now and then, about the lottery winner, the person who spent a whole life, maybe as just an average middle-class individual or maybe barely scraping by at the bottom of the uh, economic uh, totem pole, and suddenly they win the big one. And now they've got millions of dollars at their disposal. This is going to cure everything that ails them. They'll pay off the mortgage. They'll buy a new car for the family. They've got money to travel. They're going to give money to mom and dad. All the wonderful things that are going to come with winning the lottery. And then there's the statistic, the hard reality that 70% of lottery winners, I'm not talking somebody that won five bucks in a scratch-off, I mean somebody that's taken in some serious money, 70% of them within five years are right back to where they were the day before they bought that winning ticket. Wow. And of course, with that, I would suspect, Amy, comes an awful lot of people that, in spite of having all their dreams fulfilled, felt tremendously unsatisfied. Yeah, exactly. So not only do people who, and it's not just lottery winners, by the way, it's, it's anyone who comes into a sudden, sudden windfall of money, um, 70% of them end up bankrupt within five years. And it's not just a, the financial you know, bankrupt, bankruptcy that happens, but also you hear story after story of people saying, you know, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> I became a person I didn't like. You know, I, I would have been better off never winning the lottery or having no money at all because of the other changes that happen in their lives as well, in their own character, um, in the character and behavior of the people around them who suddenly, you know, become very greedy. Um, and they, they just don't like the consequences of having all that money, even though obviously they wanted it or they wouldn't have bought a ticket, right? Um, so it's just one example of of the many ways that getting what we want often turns out to be very disappointing. Paul the Apostle talks about being uh, content in all circumstances, I think in Philippians 4. Uh, And yet in that contentment, there certainly is not a sense of complacency, to be sure. 
Um, let's let's sort of wade into now the the uh, more difficult theological waters here for some, and that is this notion that satisfaction would suggest. I mean, for example, if I sit down for a meal and I eat my fill, I would say that I have eaten to my satisfaction. That means that I'm full up, and I really don't desire any more. It would seem to me that if anything. God, in his communion, in his relationship with us, would never really want us fully satisfied, would he? Wouldn't he always want us longing for and yearning for more? Yeah, exactly. I think he always wants us to want more of him, um, to want more of his righteousness, you know, reflected in our own character. And in fact, in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, this is one of the categories of people that Jesus said are, are blessed. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And, of course, that will be is a long-term prospect. It's, it's someday, you know, it's in eternity that we will experience the full satisfaction of that hunger. And yet he wants us to live with that hunger and that thirst for righteousness in our own lives, for the manifestation of God's righteousness here on earth and in eternity, and for us to decide you know, I've had it really had enough of God. I don't need any more. I've got everything I need of Him, even though I don't live in His presence, even though I don't, I, I have barriers between me and Him because I'm still a sinful person and because, you know, I, I live in this, this world where our experience of Him is limited. Um, but, but that's enough for me. I think that, that's very tragic, actually, if you think about it, that we would, we would stop desiring what God actually wants and plans to offer us, and that is a much fuller experience of Him. And, you know, again, coming back to my reference earlier to Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are true, honest, just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things, whatsoever things are of good report, if they be of any virtue, if they be of any praise, think on these things. And, and the implication there is much deeper than simply thinking it's dwelling, and that takes us to that yearning place that we should be focused on, the things of God. And if we yearn after God, if like David, we have a heart after God, God will give us a sense of satisfaction. But, you know, I think we're, we're careful, as you're suggesting, to note that it's not to the cup running over because he wants us to continue to yearn more. There's no such thing as ever being fully satisfied. Can you imagine getting to heaven and saying, okay, I've been here long enough? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, it's a a striking passage that speaks to this idea, I think, is the the passage in John 4 where Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and she's drawing water from the well in the middle of the day, you know, and he asks her to draw a cup of water for him, and um, they get into conversation, and eventually he, he tells her, um, you know, if, if you, um, this is a, a paraphrase, of course, but if you, um, if you only knew who was speaking to you, you know, you would ask, and I would offer you a spring of living water. And whoever has that spring of water, you know, won't go thirsty. Um, their thirst won't be unsatisfied. And, you know, people often look at that passage and say, see, you know, as long as you have Jesus in your life, as long as you drink that living water, you're good. You don't need anything more. You don't have any more thirst. And yet, it's actually not what the passage is saying at all. What, it, it, one of the interesting things about that passage is that there's a contrast that Jesus is pointing to between drawing water from a well, a cup at a time, you know, drinking it a cup full at a time, 
and having access to a spring of living water that is a fountain, basically, that is constantly producing water for us. That doesn't mean that we our thirst goes away. It just means we have access to a better water source. Um, and that water source eventually will become, you know, fully satisfying for us. But in the meantime, we have to keep going back to that fountain. We have to keep uh, in contact with that source of living water so that we can have our thirst quenched. But our thirst itself does not go away. And sadly, the theological disconnect here is that somehow you can achieve a state of, I guess, in a um, purely pagan fashion, we would say nirvana. From a uh, warped theological viewpoint, we would suggest that we can achieve some state of satisfaction in our relationship with God that somehow insulates us from hardship and meets all of our fleshy or earthly desires, the car, the boat, the whatever. And so now suddenly we're just, we've got it all. I mean, it's all clicking on all eight cylinders. And yet that isn't at all what God is saying or suggesting here, and that in reality, there's no such thing as being insulated from hardship. God doesn't save us to take us around the problems of life, but rather to help us get through the challenges and hardships of life. We live in a fallen world. The world is under the condemnation of sin because of man's act in the Garden of Eden, and we have repeated that offense to God down through the many generations since our original parents. And as a result, this is the price we pay. This is the, the, the nature of the fallen creation. And yet God wishes us to, to focus on him. And when you speak of satisfaction, as we're suggesting, um, there really should be, from a practical standpoint, no way of being completely satisfied in our relationship. If anything, in fact, God wants us to, to continue in that yearning for him. And as you suggest in the book title, that we would be blessed by being unsatisfied. Now, let's make a distinction here. As you point out in the book, and, and, and take your time in helping us to understand this, Amy. You make a distinction between being unsatisfied versus being dissatisfied. Yeah, I think this is a really important distinction, actually, because it can be easy to think that if I say, you know, you won't be satisfied, that the only alternative is to be dissatisfied. And dissatisfaction, the way I see it, is really, you know, it's a very negative state. It's uh, expecting satisfaction and not receiving it. And so people who are dissatisfied become very focused on what they don't have. Um, they become focused on the ways that reality is falling short of their expectations. And this eventually can lead to bitterness, anger, you know, a feeling of emptiness, um, a preoccupation with what they don't have. And, and it's a very negative condition, and it's actually very destructive to us. And that's not what I'm advocating here at all. I think there's a very different approach that we can take, and that is to be unsatisfied, which is merely recognizing I am not satisfied, and I can accept that I'm not. I, I don't expect to be satisfied, fully satisfied. Now, that doesn't mean we don't experience some level of satisfaction in our lives and in our relationship with God. We all certainly do. But that ultimate complete satisfaction is out of reach for me right now, and to make peace with that, you know, rather than seeking something that we won't achieve. And then we can become, in, instead of being focused on what we don't have, you know, we can become focused on what we will have. You know, live with a sense of anticipation for what will come our way rather than the disappointment and, and frustration that comes with being dissatisfied 
because we thought we should be satisfied here and now. And I think so often, again, that that misplaced sense of what satisfaction is that tends to cater to the flesh um, can oftentimes lead people into a crisis of faith because they go in with an expectation because they've been exposed to false teaching. And then when that satisfaction never happens, they think, "Uh oh, there you go. You can't trust God, can you? The other issue at hand here, and I think you've touched on it quite uh, quite accurately, Amy, and, and I'm reminded of a comment that uh, was publicized again here recently with the passing of Billy Graham. And he said, when you hear news that I've died, don't be sad for me. I'm going to be celebrating. I'm going to be in a much better place, and I will see him as he is. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, that sense of always having longing, having yearning, never being fully satisfied, always wanting more, should be a component of our faith walk. By heavens, if it wasn't, then what do we say of our of our imagination, of our anticipation about heaven? If we could be fully satisfied in our relationship with Christ is as it is right now here on earth, wow. And that doesn't seem to think that say that we have much of an idea as to the difference it's going to be when we're in the very presence of God himself in heaven. And so getting a proper perspective on this, I think, is critically important, and understanding that our definition, mankind's definition of what satisfaction means and God's are two entirely different things. And in reality, if you're satisfied, there's probably something wrong that you need to check. And if you're seeking satisfaction in earthly things, you need to take a serious look at that, too, because God would suggest that blessed are those who are unsatisfied and yet continue to seek him. It's a great book, by the way, newly published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also uh, order it through Amy's website, amysimpsononline.com. That's amysimpsononline.com. Blessed are the unsatisfied, finding spiritual freedom in an imperfect world. All right, with our thanks to Amy for being with us, let's uh, turn things over to Michael Bennett again, get a look at traffic here on this Wednesday. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to turn corner and deal with another topic, uh, one that, quite frankly, a lot of us rebel against, we, we struggle with. We've heard passages of Scripture regarding now the wives should submit themselves to their husbands, and of course we we sometimes uh, uh, sort of recoil at that idea and, and then fail to recognize the second portion of that Scripture says that husbands should, should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and we know how Christ loved the church. He gave his very life for it. But this whole issue of learning how to submit and what submission means is something that a lot of us, quite frankly, struggle with. Uh, Certainly in our fallen condition, the sense of wanting to rebel, not submit, seems to come more naturally. But at the end of the day, when we talk about being able to deepen our relationship with God, is it really about rebelling or is it about submitting? Joining me now, best-selling author, radio talk show host, his program, Road to Reality. He has authored over 200 books, some of which bestsellers selling more than 2 million copies. And he, of course, is the founder and international director of Gospel for Asia, Dr. K.P. Yohannan. And K.P., great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you. Good to be with you. Boy, this whole idea of submission, we kind of get uncomfortable with that idea, don't we? The, the idea of being able to kind of lay down, to yield our 
our will to God's. That's something that most of us just don't really cuddle up to. Yeah, you know, uh, when you think about it, anytime you, you hear the word submission or uh, surrender, naturally uh, our hearts um, go cold and uh, we, don't, we don't like to hear that. And one of the reasons is, you know, the, the, the abuse of leaders and authority and, uh, you know, husbands. Um, and I think um, we naturally resist that. But the, the truth of the matter is this, that someone who is truly following the Lord, um, they, they, they want to please the Lord, and that also involves in um, embracing humility and submitting to authority, even when there are difficulties we have to deal with. You know, think about David, who absolutely uh, knew God, and God anointed him, and here he was in a difficult situation under King Saul, and David had every chance in the world, and of course, you know, he would be justified to kill Saul and... um, Uh, inherit what was already given to him by God, but he would not do that. He said, I cannot do it, and I cannot raise my hand against God's anointed, even when Saul was, you know, uh, a man who walked away from God. And I think there there needs to be a deeper understanding of godliness uh, by our absolute surrender to God and His ways. And uh, our problem in America or in the church, honestly, I do not think it is, a uh, huge abuse of authority. Rather, it is um, uh, people that uh, we, we do not want to uh, die to self and uh, be willing to uh, walk under the authority of God. It's interesting that you would single out David. Many of us would sort of regard him instantly as being this tremendous man of God. He's known as a man that has heart after God, a tremendous leader, and yet not really recognizing that perhaps one of his greatest attributes, one of his greatest strengths, was his ability to submit to God's authority. And, you know, trusting in God's sovereignty. You know, the scripture says in First John, someone says that, you know, I love God so much, the God that you cannot see, but then do not love those that he can see. The scripture says he is a liar or she is a liar. The truth is not in that person. So uh, when we live on earth, uh, acknowledging God's sovereignty, you know, and, and trusting him um, and, and submit to him, as long as the authority don't ask us to violate God's law and disobey God. And, uh, you know, uh, there are times, um, you know, I talk about that in the book, uh, when the authority asks us to violate God's word, we, we cannot... Uh, say, okay, I do whatever you tell me to do. Uh, But I I really believe uh, when you have 65% divorce rate um, in our evangelical uh, homes, or 82% of the young people who grew up in Bible-believing churches leave the church when they leave home, and um, the broken families, uh, there has to be some explanation to this. And I think we are uh, 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 self-willed, arrogant, proud, stubborn people uh, that we will, mu- we, we will not give up and we will fight. And um, uh, someone who wants to know God and be godly, I think Jesus lived in absolute submission to his Father, which also reflected in his submission to his parents, who were not 
you know, you know, angels. They were fallen people. How he lived, uh, obeying his father, which was reflected in his life on earth. And I think the Lord calls us to uh, follow him. Um, and I think Romans 13 very clearly talks about that. You know, I'm, uh, you know, not the one who promotes that we go around and fight with everybody around us, but really the question is this, do we truly know the living God in our life? And is there godliness in us? That should be the reason um, why we surrender and obey and, and live through this. And the scripture is full of illustrations to this. Let's go deeper. The point that you make, uh, KP, regarding arrogance and pride and how that feeds into our culture, our society today, is part of the challenge here in terms of understanding what it means to wholly submit to God, the notion that quite often we equate submission with weakness and we think, well, I can't possibly submit because I don't want to be seen as being weak or vulnerable? No, you see, the thing is, when you study the Scripture, um, you know, submission is not weakness. As a matter of fact, the, the, the text itself, when you read about it, talks about strength under control. Um, it is um, my choosing to say, you know, I, I, I yield my rights and I do not want to fight. And, you know, Joseph had every right, every uh, reason to accuse, to fight and malign and uh, do all kind of things against, uh, you know, uh, his master and his wife and so on. But you never find him complaining, murmuring, uh, fighting. And um, the, the reality uh, is this, that in the body of Christ, uh, in the local church or in the home, because we never learned what it means to die to self and denying ourselves, uh, we want God, you know, it is like in America, you say, you want the cake and eat it too. Um, it, it just don't work like that. And I think the message of the cross and dying to self and being broken and humble and being uh, not wolves but lambs following the Lord Jesus Christ um, is seen uh, in, in the way we conduct ourselves in the society, in home, um, and things like that. And think about it. Uh, our very culture in the United States, as you know, I mean, we were born out of rebellion in some ways. And from the uh, childhood, we are taught, you know, fight for yourself, um, defend yourself, and and uh, you have your rights and stand up for your rights. I'm not saying we should, you know, um, you know, agree with all the dumb things going on and just lay down and somebody, you know, wipe you out. No, I, I'm, I'm talking about people that read God's Word and, and trusting His sovereignty and willing to obey those um, that God placed over us. And that's what, you know, Paul writing to the slaves, their masters many times abusing them. And he says, you must obey your masters as unto the Lord. While Paul says, masters, you know, treat these people as your brothers. And Paul never promoted rebellion and fight and uh, that is exactly what Lucifer did. Uh, he did not want to submit uh, under authority, and uh, angel became Satan. And in all of us, there is that seed of Lucifer. By nature, we are stubborn and rebellious people. And so uh, we, don't, we don't want to experience suffering in the flesh, which is the means 
we learn obedience and understand the ways of God. That's what the Bible says. Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and which translates into um, walking away from uh, our rights many times and, and, and follow instruction. And fascinating that we seem to take almost a, one extreme or another position. In other words, KP, we're either independent and strong, or we're submissive and we're weak. And yet look at the image that we see of Christ, presented as both the Lion of Judah, a tremendous symbol of strength, and overcoming the very gates of hell, and yet also depicted in the weakness of the Lamb that ultimately was slain on our behalf. And so we see it not as one extreme or another, but in this case, really uh, both. A look at Touching Godliness, a new book written by K.P. Yohannan, available, by the way, through Gospel for Asia. You can contact them online at gfa.org. That's gfa.org. He's authored over 200 books and the radio program syndicated on over 900 stations weekly. Dr. K.P. Yohannan, founder and international director of Gospel for Asia. And K.P., is always a delight to have you with us on the program. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.